We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Proverbs 31. A wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. It's nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen, linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you are new, I want to welcome you. If you are looking for a seat, there's a couple up front here. uh, So feel free to come on down and grab one. Uh, We are in a series in the book of Proverbs, and this is a series that is all about wisdom. The book of Proverbs is a book that is all about wisdom. And uh, we're in a season where we're looking at all that Proverbs has to say about our lives, these different areas, these different places in our lives where we need wisdom. And uh, I'm going to kind of make a little bit of a, a big statement here. I think the topic that we're looking at today may be the one where we are most in need of wisdom, where wisdom is most important. Uh, we're talking about work today. And why do I say that uh, work may be the most important place that we need wisdom? Well, think about this. Did you know that the average person will spend a total of 90,000 hours in your life working? If you add all that, that's, a, that's one-third of your life you will spend at work. Uh, if you add all of that up, 90,000 hours over the course of a lifetime is 10.2 years. 
It's a lot of time. Compare that to how the average person over the course of a lifetime only spends 368 days total socializing with friends. And here's the point is simple. We spend more time at work than anywhere else. Which means if there's any place in our life where we need wisdom, it is in our work. Now this passage has so much to teach us about work. I know some of you are like, what? I thought this is about wives. Uh, when I was in college, uh, this, Christians can be really cheesy sometimes. We used to talk about finding a, a, a P31 woman, a Proverbs 31 woman. I got me a Proverbs 31 woman. She's right back there. Um, yeah, big hand for Katie Webster this morning. <laughs> she asked me to do that, actually. She's actually shaking her head. Why are you talking about me? Uh, some of you hear this passage and you think, wait a minute, I thought this was all about wives. Um, this passage has so much to teach us about work. And I love the fact that when Proverbs wants to teach us about work, it holds up as an example for us a woman. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Now, I, I want to, this is actually really important because some of you are here this morning. And you think that Christianity is oppressive to women. Uh, and maybe you grew up in, in Christian circles that were misogynistic and kind of patriarchal. Uh, maybe you're just here this morning and you're new, you are new to Christianity, you're just here exploring. And this is one of the things that really keeps you from becoming a Christian. You say, it just seems like the Bible is always holding women down. No. No, in fact, that, if, you, if you think that, you just haven't read the Bible. Go to the Gospels. Jesus was, he was revolutionary in the way that not only that he saw women as having dignity, but he affirmed their gifts. He affirmed their talents. They were a critical part of his ministry. And then we open up this chapter in Proverbs that wants to teach us about work and who does it hold up for us. It holds up a woman. Now, before we dive into this text, I want to address three groups of people as we, as we think about work. The first is students. We've got a lot of students in this room, middle school students, high school students. We've got college students in this room. When I talk about work, I don't want you to just think about what you're going to do after you get out of school. That's important, but I also want you to think about the calling that God has placed on your life, your job right now, which is to be a student. Okay, so this applies to you. Here's the second group of people I want to address. Stay-at-home parents. Stay-at-home parents. Do you hear that this is a sermon about work and you think, I should have slept in this morning because I'm really tired and my kids are wearing me out? Uh, no, no, no. This applies to you. This applies to you. In fact, you have one of the hardest and most important jobs of anybody in this church. And you need wisdom. You need wisdom. The last group of people I want to address is those who are retired, those who are no longer working for pay. Friends, retirement is a myth, okay? And what I mean by that, I don't mean you can't stop working. What I mean is if you have breath, God has a job for you to do. If you are still on this earth, God has work for you to do. This applies to you. You need wisdom. So, all right. The last thing is this. Dave mentioned this Friday night we've got a spiritual formation. I want to give a quick plug for that because, you know, a sermon, one sermon on work is not enough. It is not enough for you to figure out how do I, 
how does faith impact my job as a Christian? It is not enough. A sermon is not enough. A sermon is me talking at you. And hopefully you walk away with some helpful things today and you're reminded of God's love for you. But it's not enough. It's a one-way conversation to really wrestle through how does my faith impact my work as a Christian You have got to be in conversation with other people. That's why we're doing this on Friday night. So please come, and dinner's free. Why would you not come? Okay, now let's talk about work. What does this passage have to teach us about work? I want to give us a roadmap. Here's where we're going today. Three points. We're going to talk about the goodness of work, and then some guidelines for work, how how faith impacts work. And then the last thing is we're going to talk about the gospel and work. So first, let's talk about the goodness of work. This woman, this woman in Proverbs 31 has so much to teach us about the goodness of work. Look at these verses. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, she considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. This woman is a developer. She's a farmer. Look at verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She's a fashionista. She is, uh, she's an entrepreneur. Uh, verse 27 says, she watches over the affairs of her household. And one, one author says this, that the household refers to the whole complex of productive enterprise, as well as to the extended family, employed workers, and perhaps even slaves who worked and lived there. By the way, slaves, very different connotation in the Old Testament, think servants. Uh, as the manager of the household, the valiant woman in Proverbs 31, is much like a modern-day entrepreneur or senior executive, as well as a mother to her children. This lady is a boss. If she went on to Shark Tank, all four, all four investors would give her an offer. Okay, she is. Do you see how hard she works? Do you see how much she is praised for her work? Uh, it is. It is hard. It's hard to overstate the degree to which this passage is saying work is a good thing. Now, I want to back up for a minute because there's a, there's, there, what lies underneath these verses in Proverbs 31 is what I want to call this morning a biblical theology of work. A biblical theology of work. See, most of us, we think, many Christians, many Christians think that the Bible does not have that much to say about their work, which is tragic because that's where you spend most of your hours. You see, the Bible has something to say about every part of our lives, including our work, and perhaps what Christians are needing more than anything else today is a biblical theology of work. So I want to give that to you this morning. Here it is. A biblical theology of work starts with this truth. All work is good, And all work matters to God. Let me say that again. All work is good and all work matters to God. And the question you should be asking is, well, where does the Bible say that? And the answer is, it says it on the very first page. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, says this. It says, after six days of creating, after six days of For six days God worked, is what Genesis 2 says. For six days God worked, and on the seventh day he rested. The very first thing that the Bible says God does is work. Okay? Then God creates humanity. 
Do you know what the very first command God gives to the very first humans is? It is to work. God says, I've got a job for you. See this garden? I want you to tend it. I want you to care for it. I want you to make it beautiful. God works and then he makes us to work. Think about this. Work was a part of paradise. Some of you are like, I cannot wait to just get to heaven and I don't work anymore. No, 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 no. Work will be there. And it will be wonderful. There are moments right now where it is a curse and it's hard and it's frustrating because we live in a broken world and everything is cursed, even our jobs. But work existed in paradise. And consider this, when Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, came into this world, how did he come? He came as a carpenter. He came as a worker. All work is good, and all work matters to God. And this was something that was utterly unique about Christianity. Um, in the ancient Near East, some of you uh, in school, you read the, uh, the Enuma Elise, which is the, the Babylonian creation myth. And if you, if you never read this, the Babylonian creation myth, this ancient creation myth, said that work was something that the gods created, uh, uh, humanity, human beings, uh, the reason God created human beings was because the gods didn't want to do work. They were above work. And then you come to Jesus' time, you know, the Greeks, they thought that work was something that came out of Pandora's box, along with all of the other ills and evils of society. And the Romans of Jesus' day, they thought that work was degrading, especially physical labor. But Christianity has a different message it says that all work is good and all work matters to God. Now let's apply this for just a moment. Here's what this means. It means that God cares about your Monday through your Saturday just as much as he does your Sunday. God cares about every part of your life. He cares about your work. I have people say this to me all the time. You know, pastor, the work you do is what's really important. You know, my job, my work, it, it's not, it, it doesn't really matter. What you're doing, you're doing the important work. Do you, do you know how unbiblical that is? When, when God created the first human beings, he did not tell them to be pastors. <laughs> he told them to be gardeners, which means that you can serve God in any vocation. In any vocation, you can serve God in medicine. You can serve God in education. You can serve God as a social worker. You can serve God in tech. You can serve God in finance. You can serve God in law. You can serve God in construction. You can serve God working in a fast food restaurant. You can serve God at a nonprofit. You can serve God at a for-profit. You can serve God anywhere. This is so important to get into your life. Otherwise, there becomes this huge divide in your life between Sundays and Monday through Saturday. Martin Luther says it this way, the great uh, theologian, he said, I think we have this up here. No, we don't have this up there. He said, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays, not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. Amen. I love clean floors. The Christian shoemaker 
The, he's, Martin Luther says the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. I think one of the main reasons so many Christians are bored in life is because we do not have a biblical theology of work. We do not understand the fact that work, all work is good and all work matters to God. Work is a good thing. Let's talk about some guidelines for work. I want to give you four ways this morning that faith ought to impact your work. Four ways. Here's the first. This is going to surprise you. Ambition. Okay, let me ask you a question. Is ambition a good thing or bad thing? The answer is it depends. And many Christians get this wrong. They think that ambition is inherently wrong. I just, I want you to see how ambitious this woman is. Look at this. In verse 13, it says that she works with eager hands. In verse 15, it says that she rises while it is still night. In verse 17, it says that she sets about her work vigorously. In verse 18, it says that she is, ex- she is extremely profitable. She is driven. She is ambitious. She wants to achieve. And she is praised for it. Proverbs 31 is holding, the writer of Proverbs is holding her up as an example to us. So how do you know when ambition is good or bad? How do you know? That's a really important question. And C.S. Lewis says this. He says, this is kind of a long quote, but hang with it. He says, ambition, we must be careful what we mean by it. If it means the desire to get ahead of other people, then it is bad. If it means simply wanting to do a thing well, then it is good. It isn't wrong for an actor to want to act his part as well as it can possibly be acted. But the wish to have his name in bigger type than the other actors is a bad one. What we call ambition usually means the wish to be more conspicuous or more successful than someone else. See, it's not not the wish to be successful. It's the wish to be more successful than someone else. It is this competitive element in it that is bad. It is perfectly reasonable to want to dance well or look nice. But when the dominant wish is to dance better or to look nicer than the others, when you begin to feel that if the others danced as well as you or looked as nice as you, that would take all the fun out of it, then you are going the wrong way. Here's what Lewis is saying. It's really simple. Of course God wants you to work hard. Of course God wants you to achieve. Of course God wants you to do your best. But ambition goes wrong when it becomes about comparing yourself to others and beating them out. So let me give you just two tests, two questions this morning to help you kind of diagnose whether your ambition is good or bad. Here's the first Are you able to celebrate the successes of others? Other coworkers, other people in your field, when they do well, are you able to celebrate their successes or do you live in envy? Or do you even like privately, inwardly rejoice at some of their downfall? 
because it puts you ahead. Here's the second question. As you succeed, as you progress in work, as you advance in your career, do you seek to bring others along with you? Now, I got this actually from a woman in our congregation at one of our spiritual formation dinners months ago. We were talking about power and how the gospel shapes a Christian's understanding of power and how we use power. And this is what she said. She said, ambition can be a good thing. The desire to rise up can be a good thing as long as you seek to bring others up with you. If comparison lies underneath your ambition, you will not be able to celebrate the successes of others, and you will not to seek to bring others along with you because everyone else around you will be a threat. But if there is a godly ambition, a desire to make the most of the gifts and the talents and the opportunities that God has given to you, to achieve and to succeed wherever God has placed you, then you will not, if there's a godly ambition, you won't be threatened by other people. You seek to bring them along up with you and you'll be able to celebrate in their successes. Ambition. Here's the second uh, guideline for how faith impacts work. It's excellence. Excellence. I mean, just look at the quality of this woman's work. Let me, let me read you some. Verse 22 It says that she is clothed in fine linen and purple. Verse 24 says that she makes linen garments and she sells them. Linen garments were the highest quality. She is producing the best. Verse 31 says, Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. Her work was so good. It was so excellent that other people were taking notice. See, here's what it means to work as a Christian. It means to do your work in such a way and with such excellence that your coworkers, your boss, your clients, your customers begin to take notice. Let me put it to you this way. Quiet quitting is not an option if you are a Christian. You guys know what quiet quitting is? You know, first, out of COVID, we had the great resignation. And then we had quiet quitting. Quiet quitting is you don't actually quit outwardly. You just kind of quit inwardly. You do the minimum amount to sneak by. You, 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 you stop caring. That's what quiet quitting is. You stop caring. And this is actually what Proverbs calls slothfulness. A sloth is someone who stops caring. But a Christian is someone who cares deeply, who does their work with excellence, who says there's no task, there's no task beneath me. There's no corners that I'm going to cut. I mean, look at, I love that verse 27 says, she does not eat the bread of idleness. There is no quiet quitting going on with this woman. She is working hard and she's doing it with excellence. And and, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says this. I love this quote. He says, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven earth will pause to say here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well 
What does it mean to work as a Christian? How does faith impact your work if you are a follower of Jesus? It means that you do it with excellence. 1 Thessalonians 4 says it this way. Paul says, make it your ambition. Listen to that. It, this, is, this is the Bible telling you. Have ambition. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. To do Christian work means to do it with such excellence and in such a way that it wins the respect of those around you, that people begin to take notice. Here's the third guideline. It's integrity. Uh, What does integrity mean? Integrity means that you're trustworthy. Look how trustworthy this woman is. Verse 10 says that she has noble character. Verse 11 says that her, her husband has full confidence in her. That means he trusts her. She is a woman of character and integrity in her place of work. Do you have character and integrity at work? Can people trust you? Now, some of you have really bad bosses, like really bad ones. And I I hope none of our staff is like nodding their head right now. That would not be a good thing. Uh, When you have a really bad boss, it is easy to lack integrity. Why? Well, because they don't respect you. I mean, some of you have been treated terribly by your bosses. So why should you respect them? I mean, they haven't earned your trust. So why should you care about them trusting you? Why should you care about being trustworthy? Listen to what Ephesians 5 says. It says, obey your earthly masters. Now, a boss A boss is a type of earthly master. It says, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Listen to this. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. And what this verse is saying is that Some of you have earthly bosses, they're good bosses, and they deserve your trust, and they deserve hard work, and some of you don't have good bosses. But behind every earthly boss, whether they are good or bad, what this verse is saying is, if you're a Christian, you have a heavenly boss, and he is ultimately the one that you work for, and he always deserves good work. God always deserves good work. He always deserves work that is done with excellence and with integrity. And as long as you see your earthly boss as your only boss, you will always find ways to cut corners and to not be honest with your boss, with your coworkers, with your customers, with your clients. But when you see that God is your ultimate boss, it changes everything. You start to work with integrity. Even when people aren't looking. Even when you're, you know, working remotely from home and nobody sees any of it, it changes everything. Here's the fourth guideline. How does faith impact work and its blessing? Now, it is so easy to see your job as nothing more than a means to get money, to get status, 
you know, to enable you to take the vacations you want to take, eat at the restaurants you want to eat at. Work just becomes a means to your own end. Christian, a biblical theology of work says something really different about work. It says that the primary purpose of work, all work, no matter what your job is, white collar, blue collar, high paying, low paying, the purpose of all work is to bless others. You know what? Everybody in this passage is blessed through this woman. It says that her husband is blessed through her work. It says that her children are blessed through her work. Verse 15 even says that her servants are blessed through her work. Verse 18 says that her clients are blessed through her work. And then verse 20 even says that the poor and the needy are blessed through her work. So how does faith as a Christian impact your work? It means that your work becomes a vehicle to bless others. And what I have found is that in so many Christians' lives, they really struggle to see how their work is a blessing. Martin Luther, uh, he has this really great exposition on Psalm 145. And there's this place in Psalm 145 that says, God feeds his creatures. This is this saying, if, if you have food, it's because God gives it to you. It's a gift. And this is why Christians often pray before we eat. It is to thank God for our food. But what Martin Luther says is, I want think for a moment about how did that food get on your plate? I mean, it didn't just magically show up. God didn't just kind of like poof, drop it out of the sky. No, somebody made that food. Somebody shipped that food. Somebody sold that food. And what Martin Luther says is, this is how God feeds you. It's through all of these people who are doing very basic jobs. He even goes so far as to say that all of these, all of these people who are doing very basic jobs, it is God in disguise. You thought that DoorDash driver showing up at your door was like some random guy. No, it is God in disguise, is what Martin Luther is saying. Praise God for DoorDash. What Martin Luther is saying is, if your work helps people in any way, this isn't about like, did you share the gospel with them? Did you throw a gospel tract at them? Did you pray with them? No, no, this is saying, if your work helps people in any way, then it is God's way of caring for his creation. It is God's way of blessing the world. There's another place uh, where Martin Luther talks about Psalm 147. And Psalm 147 says, God strengthens the gates of your city. That means God protects the city. God protects Oakland. But how does God do it? How does God protect Oakland? He does it through legislatures. He does it through police officers. He does it through firefighters. He does it through city planners. He does it through people who are working for justice and safety. This is such an exciting way to live life. Christianity does not invite you into a life of boredom. It invites you to a life of expanding horizons where you begin to see that your work is not just about you. And it is not just a means of getting money. And money is a good thing. We're talking about money next week, by the way. But it means to see your job as a way to bless other people, to join God in his mission of blessing the world. And you do not have to go into ministry to do that. You can do it in whatever job you are in right now. And you can do it with godly ambition as you look to 
progress. And as you look to bring others along with you and as you do it with excellence and integrity. Let me just say, four guidelines. These are so important for our witness as Christians in this city. Listen to me. Everybody that you interact with Monday through Saturday, God wants to use you in, your, in their life. Your encounter with them is not an accident. God wants to use you in their life, and he wants to work in their lives. But the reality is, is that most, the large majority of those people are not going to walk through these doors and have their life changed in this room. You know how their life is going to be changed? Watching you. Watching you at work. Watching the way you work. Watching the way that you do it with ambition. Watching the way you do it with excellence and with integrity and the way that you seek to bless others. These guidelines, they're so important, but they are not enough. They are not enough. I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago who's been coming to our church. Uh, They're not a Christian. They're just exploring the claims of Jesus. And they asked me this question. They said, you know, I really like the teachings of Jesus. I really like the morals of Jesus. I like the principles of Christianity. But I'm I'm not all in on this son of God stuff. So why can't I just take the morals and kind of leave all the other stuff? And I just want you to know, if you only take these guidelines that we've talked about and you try to live them out, if all you take are the morals and the principles, one of two things will happen. You will either apply these things to your life, and as you do, you will start to look down on everybody else who doesn't around you. You become proud and self-righteous and arrogant, and everybody who works around you will loathe you. Or you will try to apply these things, and you will fail, and it will crush you. Because you'll constantly be feeling like, I cannot measure up. I cannot live the life. I cannot follow the principles that God has called me to follow. We need these guidelines, but we need something else to go with them. And that is the last point, the gospel and work. The gospel and work. Have you ever noticed that the very first question we tend to ask people after we meet someone new, or the first question that we get asked, you probably did it here this morning during the greeting time if you met somebody new. We ask somebody their name, and then we ask them, what do you do for work? What do you do for a living? Why is that? I'll tell you why it is. In traditional cultures, Your identity, your sense of meaning, it came from your family. It came from the family that you were born into and the place where you were from. But in modern culture, in Western culture, your identity comes from what you do and what you accomplish. That is how we define people. David Letterman, uh, just before he quit doing the The Late Show, He said this, he said, every night I feel like I have to prove my self-worth. It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. If I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I've come short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 
24 hours. What is he saying? He is saying that his work became the measure of his worth. And we all experience this to some degree. And see, when your work becomes your source of meaning, and when it becomes your identity, and when it makes you go, I am somebody, or I am not anybody, when your work becomes your source of meaning and identity, there will always be this undercurrent of fear in your life. Always. This undercurrent of fear. You will be afraid of criticism at work. Every time that annual performance review rolls around, you will not sleep well the night before. Why? You can't handle criticism. Criticism from your employers, criticism from, from your coworkers. You know, it doesn't just, when it comes, it doesn't just make you sad, but it crushes you. Or think about this. When, when work becomes your source of meaning and identity, you will be, you'll always be afraid of other people getting ahead of you. You'll never be able to celebrate their successes. Here's another one. You'll be afraid of drawing boundaries around your work because you've got to keep producing so you can keep progressing. And so you never rest. You never take a day off. You say, I, I, I cannot, church cannot become a regular part of my life because I've got to get things done on Sunday morning. You can't rest. You can't shut off. You, for those of you who are stay-at-home parents, <laughs> when your kids, who are your job, become your source of meaning and your identity, you will live in constant fear of bad things happening in their life or them not turning out to be the people that you'd hoped. For those of us who have not had much success in life, you will live in constant insecurity of the job that you have. Every time somebody asks you, what do you do? You just kind of shrink inside. You'll be afraid you're never going to get the career you always wanted, the life you always wanted. For those who have had success in your careers, if you know yourself at all, you will be afraid of the day when you are not in that position anymore and people do not see you as important as they do now. This is why so many people really actually struggle to walk away from their jobs. When work becomes the source of your meaning and identity, there will always be this undercurrent of fear in your life. What we need is something that can free us from this fear. Is there anything that can free us from this fear? Yes, this woman has it. And ironically, it is another type of fear. Look at verse 30. It says that this woman fears the Lord. Now, this is, this is how we started the series two weeks ago. Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in case you missed it, here's what we said that week. We said the fear of the Lord is not a fear that induces terror and drives you from God, but it is a fear that induces awe and wonder, and it drives you to God and it makes you place him at the center of your life. Please hear me. When you become a Christian, God becomes the center of your life, not your work. God becomes the source of your identity, not your work. God is what gives you meaning and joy and purpose, not your work. And that means that your failure does not define you, it means that your success does not define you. It means that God defines you. Your worth is not determined by what your work says about you. 
Your worth is determined by what God says about you. And what does God say about you? There's a lot of answers to that question that you could find out in the world. Let me tell you what the Christian gospel says. The Christian gospel says that you are sons and daughters of the living God. This is what God says about you. The Christian gospel says that God has set his love on you. And he has declared you righteous in his sight. It says that you have infinite worth in his eyes. You are his treasure. It says that God delights over you and even sings and rejoices over you. Well, how is that possible? How is it possible that the creator of heaven and earth would say this about you? And that is, friends, that is what this table is actually about. See, in the world, meaning and identity, our meaning and identity, gets tethered to work. And the same is true in the gospel, but here is the difference. When you become a Christian, your meaning and your identity is not tethered to your work. It is tethered to Jesus' work in your behalf, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. Do you know, do you know what the last recorded words of Buddha are? The last recorded words of Buddha are work hard to gain your salvation. Do you know what some of the last recorded words of Jesus are? It is finished. <laughs> Not work hard, but rest in God's finished work. The work of salvation is done, which means that God loves you perfectly and unconditionally, not because of your work, but because of Jesus' work for you. If you are a Christian, get this deep into your bones. Get this deep into your bones and you will be sent out of these doors with a whole new vision for work. You see that all of your work is good and all of it matters to God. And it will change the way that you do it. You will do it with ambition. You'll do it with excellence. You'll do it with integrity. And you will bless people around you. And God will be praised. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins, drink this in remembrance of me. The Bible says that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for the finished, perfect work of Jesus in our behalf, the work that we are reminded of as we come to this table and of what that means for our lives that we are your sons and your daughters, that we are loved perfectly and unconditionally by you. Would you help us to believe that this morning? Would you help us to believe it in such a way that it would send us out this week and change the way that we work? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.